Good morning. And uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you this morning. But in all fairness and total disclosure, I need to tell you that I was actually ordained Baptist. And that means that there's a lot of enthusiasm in the Baptist denomination that many of you may know about. But I heard this story about this one Baptist guy that graduated from seminary, and he and his wife moved into their first pastorate, and he was really gung-ho. He wanted to be a good, good Baptist. So they were talking about it after they moved and got settled in, and he thought, well, let's get a dog, but let's not get any kind of dog. I want to get a Baptist dog. So they go to the pet store, and they tried a couple pet stores. Finally, they got to one, and they uh, asked him for a Baptist dog, and the owner thought a minute, and he said, well, you know, I think I have the dog for you. So he went out and brought this dog out and showed it to the guy. The guy says, good, I'll take it. Takes it home. And he's, of course, excited about having a Baptist dog, so he shows it to his wife. And right then, one of the deacons from the church happened to come over, and he showed him off to the, to the deacon as well. He said, uh, dog, go get a Bible. The dog runs out into the other room, grabs a Bible, brings it out, and lays it on the floor. He says, okay, now uh, show me John the Baptist. The dog with his paw, he's from, he comes to Matthew 3, John the Baptist. So he's really, really uh, excited about this. So... Uh, the guy that's admiring this Baptist dog says, well, can he do anything that's not related to being Baptist? And the guy says, I don't know, I've never tried. So he thinks a minute and he says, uh, okay, uh, dog, heel. Well, the dog looks around for a minute and then runs over and jumps on the visitor's lap and puts his paw on his forehead and bows his head. <laughs> and and the, the wife says, that's not a Baptist dog, he's Pentecostal. So that's, that's my uh, funny introduction. Uh, the next slide will give you a summary of the uh, message uh, for this, this uh, talk this morning. And that is that our, we really have to work hard to make our decisions glorify God. Now, this message has been a long time coming, and I've reflecting on my own personal family. Our, we've raised our kids, and uh, now they're off on their own, and I've watched them as they've grown and lived their lives, and some of them are really seeking and serving the Lord and just makes me excited to see God working in their lives. Others, not so much. So that prompted my investigation about this idea of decisions and the decisions that we make every day. And so, hence, we have this subject this morning. We need to work really, really hard to make our decisions glorify God. It was very aptly introduced by that last song that we sung. But the next slide give you an idea of the scriptures that we're going to look at this morning. The ones in bold are the primary scriptures, uh, Deuteronomy and Colossians. The others are somewhat supportive texts to illustrate the point that is made in both Deuteronomy and then in Colossians as well. Now, on the next slide, there's some similarities between Deuteronomy and this morning, some striking similarities, actually. First off, an old man preaching to God's chosen people. But I must admit, Moses had 50 years on me. The Israelites, as well as we, have immediate access to God through prayer. There are behavior and idolatry issues, both in the Old Testament Deuteronomy passage as well as in our life today. 
There's a Sinai reminder in both, and there's an intended example of both. God's design is so that people outside the church, people outside national Israel, were to witness our behavior and reflect on God about it. But now the next slide is the one that I want to uh, kind of emphasize. When does information change our behavior? Dramatic pause. When does information change our behavior? That's something that is very relevant for our everyday lives, and I will suggest that this passage might help us understand some about what should help us make those decisions that will glorify God, change our behavior. Now, the next, the next slide will begin the Deuteronomy passage. I'm going to have all the scriptures on the, uh, on the board, and I'm probably going to read from my cheat sheets here because they match the slides. Deuteronomy 4, 1 to 14. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you today. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor. But all of you who held fast to the Lord our God are still alive today. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow, and then wrote on those on the two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. That was an extended passage, but there's six commands to obey. And out of four paragraphs, as they break it down in the NIV, there's three paragraphs exhorting obedience, one paragraph giving the Israelites a very current event to motivate them, and then another motivator being the Mount Sinai experience that we'll look at after we look at the first one. The idea being God wants us, or the Israelites, us by extension, to obey him, not to forget, to teach them to our children. That seems to be a, a hard thing to do. 
given the response of the Israelites, the response of some of my children, and some of the responses I've seen and talked to people about that are contemporary with us. But I'd like to jump back now and look at that first paragraph on the next slide, Deuteronomy 4, 1 to 2. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. What, what Moses or what God through Moses is doing is saying, listen up, Israel, this is important. This is not just idle conversation. This is something that is important. Obey the word. Listen to what I'm telling you so that you will live and prosper. It's both a life promise and a prosperity promise in the land of milk and honey, in the promised land. The whole book of Deuteronomy is basically a reiteration of the law that was given at Sinai. But this time it's being given to a group of people who suffered through 40 years of desert wandering while their parents died. Their parents were the ones that received the law at Sinai. This is the next generation. This is their children. Everybody that was 20 years old and over at Sinai Experience, Mount Horeb, died in the desert. These are the children. They're one step removed from the exodus, from the taking out of Egypt when the dramatic glory of God revealed to them. But they're still commanded to remember the Sinai experience, which we're going to go back and look at in the next paragraph. But they have another exhortation brought to their attention immediately following the command to obey. Deuteronomy 4, 3 and 4. You saw with your own eyes what the Lord did at Baal Peor. The Lord your God destroyed from among you everyone who followed the Baal of Peor, but all of you who held fast to the Lord your God are still alive today. Basically he's saying, hey, you guys remember what I did in You witnessed it and you survived it. So allow that to be a motivator to continue to obey what I'm going to tell you to do in the rest of Deuteronomy, specifically in this fourth chapter that we're looking at. To give you an idea or a clearer picture of just what happened at Baal Peor, I'd like to turn to Numbers 25. That's the actual account that Moses is reminding these people of when he's giving them this address at the crossing of the Jordan. In Numbers 25.1, it starts off, While Israel was staying in Shittim, the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. So Israel joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of these people, kill them, and expose them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the Lord's fierce anger may turn away from Israel. The next slide. So Moses said to Israel's judges, Each of you must put to death those of your men who have joined in worshiping the Baal of Peor. Then an Israelite man brought to his family a Midianite woman right before the eyes of Moses and the whole assembly of Israel while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw this, he left the assembly, took a spear in his hand, and followed the Israelite into the tent. He drove the spear through both of them, through the Israelite and into the woman's body. Then the plague against the Israelites was stopped. But those who died in the plague, number 24,000. Now, this is a major event in the population of Israel. This younger generation that has come out of, or comes away from Mount Sinai, 
This, by the way, is the equivalent in that culture of having all of Victoria's Secret girls and all of the Playboy bunnies walking around town suggesting you go have a picnic with them. The culture was immoral. Uh, uh, Temple prostitution was part of the worship service. And these ladies were doing what they thought their God wanted them to do. It wasn't vile or wrong. But that was the culture that the Israelites were exposed to, and the men succumbed to that culture and brought about God's judgment. Now, the next slide is a map, and I wanted to show you something. This is where the Israelites are camped, right here. They're about to cross the Jordan and go into Jericho, or go conquer Jericho. But if you remember in the Numbers passage, it said, while they were staying at Shittim, that's Shittim right there. This is the Valley of Peor. This the whole area is the Baal Peor area. This is Moab over here. You see it down there, but it's the whole side here. From Shittim to the Jericho River is 12 miles. From the, Jericho, from the Jordan River to Jericho is 5 miles. So you've got a maximum distance of 17 miles, but 12 before they cross the Jordan. This is where the people were camped. That that judgment occurred at Shittim. And so they had to be within close proximity of where God judged them while Moses is delivering this injunction to them. So that was fresh in their thinking. It was supposedly, I've heard estimates in the neighborhood of 3 million people in this group. Now they just lost 24,000, so they're less than that. But 3 million people take up quite an area to camp. So they had to be close to where this all happened. And God is telling them, remember that. Remember that. I'm telling you now to obey my, my laws and my commands when you go into the promise. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to prosper you. Don't forget them. The point being, it's a very, very real event in this younger generation's life. And then we get on to the next, next paragraph. And he goes on to say, see, I have taught you decrees and laws. This is Deuteronomy 4, 5, and 8. I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Okay, that's their their uh, land deed, so to speak. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom standing to the nations. Remember when they finally get to Jericho in the book of Joshua, the people of Jericho have heard about the Israelites and how they've conquered all the other nations, so the people in Jericho are trembling with fear. This testimony of the Israelite nation to the surrounding nations is very, very real. And God is reminding them, here, obey me because you're going to be a witness to the world, basically, in that era. And so he wants them to remember that they need to obey the the decrees and the laws so that the nations of the world will say, hey, you're a wise nation. And what other nation has a God that's near to them as your God is near to you when they pray? That's a testimony that God wants to have so that he can be uh, uh, evangelized, so to speak, in the ancient world. The next slide is what I consider a summary to this message. Moses' message is directly from God for careful obedience in the promised land so that the nations will see their wisdom and God's glory, God's presence with you. That's a very impacting requirement right after he reminds them about the judgment that they just experienced. Not even 12 miles away from them, they experienced that judgment. He's saying, obey me, so the nations will see. (coughs) Excuse me. 
The next slide is the, the, the last paragraph in the Deuteronomy passage. And he reminds them, only be careful, be careful, watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. And here's where the next generation from them comes in. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Then he goes on to remind them at Sinai. Now, remember the day you stood before the Lord God at Horeb. uh, Horeb is the same as Mount Sinai. (coughs) Excuse me. I got to get my cup of water. I forgot to bring it up. (coughs) God is telling them about this. He's telling them to remember the event that occurred six weeks ago, five weeks ago, a month ago, within 12 miles of where they're camped. But also remember the Sinai experience because that was even more impressive as God revealed himself to the nation of Israel. And they were, some of them, were 20 years old, 19 years old. Everybody over 20 died in the desert wandering. But there were 19-year-olds, which means now those 19-year-olds are 59-year-olds. They have a good recollection of what was going on. (laughs) Remember it. Next slide. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. He declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and the laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Message summary, be very careful to remember, obey, and teach your families the law God gave you at Mount Sinai and through me as you live and prosper in the promised land. The Israelites literally had a prosperity gospel. God told them, if you obey me, I'll bless your socks off. And that's the rest of Deuteronomy, actually. If you disobey me, I'm going to toast you. And that's what the Old Testament records. The many times that they disobeyed, God judged them. They repented, God blessed them. They disobeyed, God judged them, and so on. But that's the summary of Deuteronomy here. And I want to look at what happened after this fact. So Judges 2, 6, and 7 is the next slide. And we have a record of that. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. They did obey God as long as Joshua and his crew were alive. But if you jump to verse 10... After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, the children they were supposed to be teaching, (coughs) who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. That is probably the part that started this whole research project when 
I was asked to preach quite a while ago is because I've seen my own children do things and make choices that are more in line with our culture than within Christian truth. And I've wondered why, how, what, what, where did I fail? Because I'm supposed to be the one teaching them. And I know the psychiatrists all make good explanations of why it's not my fault they're not doing godly things. But it still comes back to haunt my conscience is have I, did, have I done the best I could to teach my kids the truth of the word? I uh, have peace with that with God, but it's still some things I think about. And that's, that's what I think is the failure of the church's teaching our individual own personal relationships to our family and our children. The next slide is chapter 2, verses 20 to 23, where it says, Therefore the, God, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and had not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way, the, Lord, the way of the Lord and walk as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Then in chapter 3, they, he repeats that. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. They were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. <coughs> the reason I'm making a big deal about this is because that's the culture that the chosen people of Israel were living in. And how did they respond to that culture with their pleas or uh, anger God? I'm going to apply this to our culture and us when we get to the end of this thing. But the point being that the culture of the ancient world was specifically left by God to test the Israelite obedience. Next uh, slide concludes that little paragraph from uh, Judges 3. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perovites, Hivites, Jebusites, Chigarbites, Mosquito Bites. They, they, they took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. How did the Israelites respond to the culture? They did exactly what God told them not to do. Fail, fail, fail. They failed. And this is the historical reality. The personal experiences of the miraculous divine presentation at Sinai, so much so that Moses himself was trembling in fear. That was God's presence. That, that supernatural presentation, the horrific judgment at Baal Peor, plus the successful conquest of the promised land by Joshua, it did not motivate the people past that first generation. That, folks, is a testimony to what we as sin nature human beings will do without constant reminders. We have those constant reminders today, and we're going to get to that. But these folks didn't 
succeed in their test. That does bring us to New Testament times. And today, we have it immeasurably better. Immeasurably better. They had all the supernatural events that you could hope for. And today, there are people that still look for those supernatural events as motivation, but I don't think that's appropriate. I think our motivation is to come from God himself today. Today, God's chosen people are those who have trusted Jesus Christ by faith. Now, Pastor Trey has very effectively and precisely presented the gospel message throughout the time that I've been attending here. I just want to add, not add, but make this point clear for today's message. This is when you have become a Christian. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. That's your basis of knowing that you're a Christian. The next slide The diagnostic distinguishing point of salvation is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. I find that very confused in our culture. I talk to people who insist that they're Christians, but they're living like the devil. When I go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, it says that a true believer cannot continue living in sin. The only problem is what level of sin does that include? Does that include speeding? Does it include cheating or income tax? Does it include lusting? I mean, that's a very undefined statement in First John, but it causes great consternation. I suggest that, from my understanding of First John, that would refer to those with the Gnostic movement of the day who were denying the deity of Christ. But that's another message for another, another day. But the issue for us today is who are God's chosen people? Are you truly saved? And this is how you can tell. If you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you are saved and going to heaven. Absolutely. Hallelujah. If you do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you're not saved and you're going to hell. That is the criteria of salvation. That is what we must consider. And only you know that. You don't really know if I'm saved, and I really don't know if anybody in this auditorium is saved, because I can't see your spirit. God can, fortunately. So my point is that you need to be sure. And next slide, if you have any questions, this is an eternal issue. It's very, very important. Please talk to Pastor Trey, one of the church leaders, or me, if, if you'd like, but do it quickly before you die, because we don't know when we're going to die and it will be too late. That determines whether you're one of the chosen people or not. And assuming that you are, then we have an intended example to present, not only to the world, but to the spiritual world as well. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, this is one of the similarities to the Deuteronomy passage. His intent, that was God's intent, was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is our intended example. 
God is using us to demonstrate his wisdom, his glory, his magnificence to not only the world, but the spiritual world as well. At the end of Ephesians, he tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces in high places. That's where the, the, the battle is occurring. But that does bring us to our New Testament portion and the relevance for us today. How do we make our decisions honor God? How can we make decisions that bring glory to God? Well, Ephesians, I mean, Colossians chapter 2 gives us the, a passage that presents us with that. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Verse 10, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you, or 16, do, let not, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. God through Paul to the Colossians, is explaining to us that the law is no longer relevant or applicable today. Now, in chapter 3, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's where our focus is to be, on heavenly things, on spiritual reality, on the truths that we learn through Scripture of who we are and who God is. Next slide, verse uh, 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. See, we do have idolatry here in our culture, just exactly like the Israelites experienced in Baal Peor. It's called greed. It's called greed. That's the idolatry we struggle with. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Profanity. That's something that... I've talked about with my kids for a long time. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, for Christ is all and is in all. Being renewed in our knowledge of Christ, that requires involvement with the scriptures. That requires learning who God is from his revealed word. Being renewed involves my practice, my choices, decisions I make, whether to spend time reading the word, meditating on the word, or watching TV or some other activity. Being renewed in the knowledge of Christ. Next slide, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let the peace of God dwell in your heart. Let the word of God dwell in your heart. That's how we respond to God today. We don't follow the 613 laws of the Old Testament uh, law. We set our eyes on things above. We let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, which also would refer to the living word, Jesus Christ personally, but the written word most specifically, as well as letting that peace guide us as we make our decisions. Are you seeking the peace of God when you make a decision? I like to compare Ephesians 5.18 because this is a very similar passage. I would suggest that it's a parallel passage. It says, Do not get drunk on wine when it leads to debauchery. debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see the direct parallel? This one says be filled with the Spirit. The other one says be filled with the Word. I would suggest that this is the only passage in the New Testament that tells us to be filled with the Spirit. And it's not talking about that filling producing tongues or healing or holy dancing or laughter, but it's rather talking about singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, being thankful and honoring God. That's how I think... We are supposed to live our Christian lives as God's chosen people. And the next uh, slide, this is the arena where our decision-making takes place. This is where our lives take their shape, if you would. What direction occupies our thinking, up or down? Am I more worried about whether I've got a car like the neighbor's got or whether my TV is as big as my neighbor's or whether I have enough money or whatever that might be? Am I worried about my world or am I worried about my God? Where is my focus? Does the Bible dwell richly in my heart? Scripture memorization, meditation, and it's hard to carve that time out to do it. I I do it now easily because I'm too old and crippled to do anything else. But when I was young and viral and had a lot of energy and a lot of things to do, it was hard. It was hard to sit down and take an hour or 15 minutes or whatever I could. It was really difficult. I did it sometimes, and unfortunately I didn't do it sometimes, most of the time probably. My point being that that's what we need to do to allow the Word of Christ to dwell in us richly. How big a part does the peace of God play in our decision-making? How often do we pause and try to sense God's peace about a decision? That's how we can determine God's will. The morality issues are kind of non-issues. I mean, everybody knows you shouldn't shack up with your neighbor and you shouldn't, all those kinds of things. But what about the non-moral issues, like whether you work for this company or that company, whether you drive a Ford or a Chevy, whether you walk or ride? Those are things I think we can honestly ask God to give me peace, give me the peace of, of God, the passage of understanding, so I know what you want me to do. I think God will do that. He has in my life anyway. And finally, how much idolatry do we participate in? 
It's something I wrestle with. They owe it to me. I deserve it. Grab all the gusto you can. You only go around once. I realize after I read that, that's probably so old that most of you don't remember where that saying came from. But the idea is being greedy and, you know, getting all you can for as little as you can give. That's idolatry. That's the same thing that Baal Peor was judged for. It's idolatry in God's eyes. And that's scary. That's really scary. As we're thinking on that, next slide will bring us to a Sinai remember, reminder, which will bring this little talk or get it closer to being over. Hebrew twelve fourteen to 29. Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God, that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. (coughs) Afterwards, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. He could bring about no change of mind, though he sought the blessing with tears. I think God puts that in there for a very specific reason. You know, when you tell your kids, no, you can't do something, and they carry on, oh, no, no, please, 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 mommy, daddy, 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 eventually you give in and give it to them? That's not going to happen with God. When you die and you stand before the judgment seat, there is no second chance. There is no, if only I could just plead enough with God, he'll let me have a break. No. Esau tried it. He's the example that it won't happen. The next slide or screen is an explanation of what we have come the differences of to whom we have of what we have come to you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and it is burning with fire to darkness gloom and storm to a trumpet blast or to such a noise speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them that no no further word be spoken to them Because he could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches this mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. And Moses was, saw God face to face. That's a significant statement. But you have come, you and I have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A joyful assembly, the presence of the Holy Spirit living within us should be points of joy because we are on the winning side. Next slide. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let us be thankful. Worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Listening to the Spirit of God, listening to the voice of God still dwelling within us in a still small voice, saying, 
praising God and doing what we do to honor Him. The conclusion of this is the takeaways. History proves that God is very serious about a life of holiness for His chosen people. God has replaced the external motivation of the law with the internal motivation of the Holy Spirit. We all need to work really, really hard at letting the Word of God and the peace of God govern our decisions. And then that haunting question, will this information change our behavior? Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for the history of your people so that we can learn and grow from it. Lord, I pray that you might bless each one of us with a true heart of teachable uh, thankfulness, of a willingness to serve you and to obey you. Allow us to have a life that will bring glory to your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.